Welcome to Sword and Shield, the official podcast of the 960th Cyberspace Wing. Join us for insight, knowledge, mentorship, and some fun as we discuss relevant topics in and around our wing. Please understand that the views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the U.S. Air Force nor the Air Force Reserve, and no endorsement of any particular person or business is ever intended. Good day, gladiators. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sword and Shield podcast. It's Francis Martinez, Director of Psychological Health for the 960th Cyberspace Wing, here with two guests from San Antonio Behavioral Healthcare Hospital. I have uh, Dr. Henry Polk. He's a board-certified child and adolescent psychiatrist, and Sarah Broussard, licensed professional counselor. So thank you guys for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, so we wanted to have you guys uh, today. Um, you know, March is Self-Harm Awareness Month, and I think it's one of the things that's a little bit most misunderstood, um, and that's why, you know, I want to, you know, have a podcast on and discuss, like, what it is, what it's not, and, and um, you know, what it looks like. Yeah. Well, I, we definitely uh, agree with that and appreciate you uh, letting us be a part of this forum. I know that, you know, typically uh, as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and I know with Sarah as a therapist, we, we, we often kind of get that, 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 that bewilderment from parents about really trying to understand self-abusive behaviors and what it really means. And, and, you know, like you said, a lot of times, a lot of times that self-harm isn't about uh, a kiddo wanting to end their life and, and really trying to help uh, focus on kind of what it means for families, what it means for that individual uh, kid and what they're really struggling with and trying to really find and get that right, that picture and looking at those symptoms and getting down to the bottom of things of why it's truly occurring is important. Yeah. And then when we talk about self-harm, right, we're, we're looking at self-injurious behaviors, cutting, hitting, burning, biting yourself, you know, pulling hair. Um, those are the things that we're really, you know, talking and focusing on. And I, I know you guys like to focus a lot on kids because it really is prevalent in kids. I know about 17% of teens have admitted to one time in their life self-harming. It's very, very prevalent in kids. But, uh, you know, a lot of times, and even with the research, we see it a lot more often in kids, but it's probably been happening a lot over the years. And a lot of, you know, uh, uh, parents or adults even kind of in secrecy have in, engaged in those type of uh, behaviors. It's okay. just a lot more prevalent now because of the, the kids and the tweens, as we call them, uh, kind of see more of that stuff in kind of the mainstream medium me, media. And so we see it a, a lot more often in, in that population. And so where do you think that it really starts as far as age, that it really is, you know, average age of, of uh, child or adolescent that we see self-harming behaviors? Well, that's a tough question to answer because obviously it's going to be different for every child. Probably 12 or 13, would you say? And this is just yeah. from our own experience, but it's pretty young. It's 11, 12, 13, which yeah. is probably when it starts. Definitely that range, that 12 to 14-year-old range. And even nowadays, it's, we could even see it in uh, even starting from nine years old, but probably on average it is between mm -hmm. that 12 to 14 year old uh, age, age range when it becomes most uh, noticeable. Mm -hmm. And do you see it more in certain genders or is it, you know, focused on, on or e equal between the two? So 
Um, I guess it depends on how you operationalize self-harming, right? With um, I primarily work with teenage girls, and that's going to look like cutting. But when we work with boys, I think it presents differently in boys. And so sometimes we'll see even like punching and headbanging. It's going to look like that. But I think when we think of stereotypical self-harm, we think of teenage girls, and it looks like cutting. And what are some risk factors that we're looking for when we're talking about self-harm? Uh, I, I think when we kind of really look at self-harm um, and we kind of discuss risk factors, it's uh, a, a lot of times it's that, you know, it, from a parent's perspective, they look at it as, you know, their, their, their kid is in distress, they're suicidal, you know, they need this immediate help. Um, but from, from our standpoint, it's, it's we kind of look at cutting as almost, a, a symptom of something more, mm-hmm. whether it's an underlying uh, anxiety disorder, depression, mm-hmm. a personality disorder. Um, a lot of times we look for those cues and signs of any type of trauma, whether it be physical, sexual, or emotional. Um, so, so generally, you know, you look for those warning signs related to, you know, are they wearing long sleeves at school? Mm-hmm. Are they being more isolative or having more uh, friendship uh, difficulties or, or decreased grades and and wearing wearing the winter clothes during the summertime. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of those signs that that we really try to tell parents to really try to help to identify that uh, you know this this, this change in uh, behavior or change in kind of their appearance at times. And is it something that you know when we're talking about? self-harm with kids is it something that we continuously see throughout okay well if my kid's a cutter at 13 when they're 25 they're still doing that or is it you know some people might think oh they're gonna outgrow whatever or you know for those people that don't believe in any type of you know mental health um conditions or disorders what does that look like yeah so um Lately, I've been working a lot with older teenage girls, and when I ask them about their history of self-harm, when they say, no, I don't do that anymore, I stopped, I always ask them, what helped you stop, or why did you stop? And 99% of the time, it's peers. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know exactly why. I don't know if it's adolescent brain development, or it's, um, you know, changing values, changing social situations, but... We start to see it sort of taper off by the time um, adolescents get into the older teenage years, right? Wouldn't you say, Dr. Yeah, Polk? Yeah. Um, and we think that probably has a lot to do with it. It just doesn't magically just disappear. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things that, you know, as that, that, that adolescent brain matures and that, that emotional age finally catches up with that chronological age, they're able to, to kind of instill more coping strategies mm-hmm. instead of kind of using that self-harm as a way of, managing their emotions. Yeah, for sure. You know, you said, Dr. Polk, the the coping skills or strategies. Um, I don't think people realize that cutting or hitting or burning and biting yourself, you know, those self-injurious behaviors are really coping skills. They're just Mm -hmm. maladaptive, Mm -hmm. right? And so replacing those behaviors with something positive um, is what we're, you know, looking to, to work on. And so what are some um, ways that you guys find has been beneficial with substituting, um, you know, negative um, coping skills with positive. Oftentimes I talk to the girls about, uh, well, I'm really into yoga and, and exercise, right? And so oftentimes I talk to the girls about getting that 
um, appropriate receptive and somatic feedback through exercise because it still burns. You still get the endorphin kick. Um, so that's something that I, I really push, and we do we do movements in my groups as well. But our, I think any sort of expressive therapy, anytime the kids are expressing themselves, whether it be through music or art or dancing, that's really helpful, especially for teenagers. Writing, journaling, yeah, they just got to get it out, right? And so something that we really encourage them to do here is to practice expressing themselves in other ways and practice experiencing what that dopamine kick might feel like if, you know, if they're doing push-ups or if they're playing volleyball, like, what does that feel like? How do you feel afterwards? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just kind of to, 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 to kind of piggyback on what Sarah said, she uh, absolutely agrees that, you know, that, that self-harm behavior is actually kind of when it hits those receptors and kind of the simplified version mm-hmm. is that they kind of get this endorphin rush, mm-hmm. um, which kind of, you know, causes them to kind of go back to that behavior because, you know, a lot of times those kids that are really struggling with those, those that ability to be able to have, you know, uh, uh, coping skills that are more productive in nature, they kind of go to the cutting and it kind of kind of reinforces uh, that feeling with the increase in the endorphins and uh, really being able to understand that and help the parents to understand that and kind of all those those other healthy coping mechanisms that Sarah was talking about kind of helps to uh, replace those things to kind of mitigate them having that response over time. Mm-hmm. It's actually really interesting. The kids talk about it as if it's addiction. Have you noticed that? They'll be like, oh, I've been clean from cutting for four months. And they use addiction language and recovery language, um, which to me just, you know, underscores even more what Dr. Polk is saying about that neurofeedback and just the way that it's really affecting their little bodies. And I think when we talk about self-harm, a lot of people want to connect it to suicide. Oh my gosh, you know, they're doing this are going to hurt themselves or, or commit suicide. Is that a myth? I mean, is that something that we look at that just because you're doing this is, does it mean that you are going to, you know, commit suicide or what are, what are the risk factors there? I, I think that, you know, when we look at uh, self-harm behaviors, really trying to get a better sense of what the true underlying uh, problem is and in in assessing that and always, you know, making sure to, uh, error on the side of safety and kind of, you know, looking at all the different risk factors for each individual uh, that's experiencing self-harm behaviors and really trying to get a, a good assessment to see whether or not it is, is it, is it this parasuicidal behavior or is it this way of this maladaptive coping where they're not really dealing well with the uh, emotions and being able to verbalize it and, you know, they rather feel this physical pain as opposed to this emotional pain and kind of taking each each uh, individual and really trying to assess that to, to, to make sure it's not that, that that type of suicidal behavior that, you know, needs more intensive treatment like an inpatient setting. And is it something that, you know, I'm worried my daughter's friend is doing something, right? And then now my daughter's starting to do that. I know there's a theory of, you know, like suicide contagion. Um, is it the same with self-harm? Well, I, I probably think one of the most important things is that, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, when kids and adolescents are around each other, it's, like I said, if we kind of use that addiction model, then, you know, you have these kids that they hear their friends try it, so they want to try it. And, and so I think the main takeaway point, especially for parents, is to have that really open, honest discussion. If you know that your child is self-harming, to be you know, to be very open and supportive and acknowledging and direct and really try to uh, address that. 
in, in, a, in a way that's going to help them to open up and communicate to kind of make sure they're getting the right treatment and, and having better ways of coping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what does the treatment model really look like for helping people to recover from from self-harm? I know Sarah and I were talking about this mm-hmm. earlier and, you know, kind of the, you know, some of those main things and, you know, it's, it's getting down to the underlying issues, whether it be major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, personality disorder, sexual trauma, eating disorder, or any other type of addictions, and, and really kind of addressing those underlying things and making sure that if medications are indicated, doing those, mm-hmm. um, but then really trying to help them develop uh, more appropriate coping skills and really trying to get, you know, we were talking about kind of families mm-hmm. involved because, uh, it's, it's something that doesn't change overnight. It's something that has to be a, a family approach. Absolutely. Any therapy with adolescents and children is really family therapy, right? Because they don't exist in a vacuum. And, and parents can play such a crucial role in, in, in facilitating that healing and that recovery. It just takes a lot of work on the parents' part too, right? So oftentimes we suggest that parents get treatment, um, that family therapy is involved, um, so that everyone can be on the same page, everybody can be communicating nonviolently and just really supporting the child as much as possible. What do you guys feel like the biggest challenge is when you, you're working with kids um, that do self-harm? What are our most at-risk kids or the biggest challenge in working with this population? I always kind of go back to communication. Communication, and, and when I say communication, that's, that's all around. So when we're kind of looking at the, the child individually, them being able to kind of communicate with themselves. And what I mean by that is kind of learning that self-care, learning that self-love. We kind of have that that philosophy here is that, you know, you need to learn how to, to love yourself so you can have a better relationship with yourself so you're, you're able to communicate what those emotional needs are to others. And mm-hmm. and that communication with, with family, making sure they're understanding and having a, a good treatment support team around them is, is what it really takes for, for, for those things to get better. Mm-hmm. And so if someone is coming in um, and is needing, you know, treatment, um, how do they go about getting that that treatment there at the at the um, San Antonio Behavioral? Well, I think it depends on um, the level of care that they need, right? So if they're coming in and maybe they self-harm every once in a while or they're not really posing a big risk to themselves or to others, then we would send them over to our partial hospitalization program. Um, and there they would engage in an outpatient program where they meet in groups and with individual therapists throughout the day and then go home and have dinner with their families and rest and um, spend time with their families and recuperate. However, um, if their self-harm behaviors are posing a bigger risk to their safety or um, it's coupled with some some pretty severe suicidal ideation, then we would admit them here and they would start treatment here. I think it really depends on if you can keep yourself safe or not, right? So um, one of the benefits of inpatient psych is that we can keep you safe um, and we do provide a really supportive and safe environment where folks don't have access to things that might hurt them. So um, I think that's kind of right where we would, how we would help yeah, folks okay. get started. Yeah, like looking at those 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 individuals that are, are struggling and, um, and really kind of trying to, you know, assess that individual kid to see kind of what level of care mm-hmm. they need. Uh, if those, we you know, of course, if we see those, uh, they're more suicidal, there's more risk factors, then, mm-hmm. you know, 
going to that least restrictive environment mm-hmm. that's going to keep them safe is, mm-hmm. is definitely what we always kind of uh, indicate, mm-hmm. um, especially when you have kiddos that are still trying to develop that their 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 self identity and, and and trying to help them to kind of struggle or to help them to be able to kind of communicate those emotions and needs more to family. And it's a it, it really is not only just a a family approach, but you know as a community as well, making mm-hmm. sure that families have access to mm-hmm. uh, the different resources uh, available to them, mm-hmm. whether it be through a school counselor, whether it be through their uh, pediatrician or a friend, but mm-hmm. really kind of having open discussions like we're having now about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and, and not just, you know, making it a secret, really kind of talking about those things so, so kids and families feel more comfortable in seeking help and care. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't think... Um, so here at the, the 960th cyberspace wing, every month we try to recognize any type of awareness or prevention. Um, and there's just not a whole lot of data on self-harm in itself, right? Like it's a phenomenon that hasn't been studied for a very long period of time. And it doesn't have a lot of, you know, a whole lot of data to support it or a lot of even recognition. So I don't think a lot of people really know about this, you know, maladaptive uh, coping skill. And so, you know, that's why we're really just trying to educate and that's, we're trying to get on the forefront, right, of education, prevention, um, before it turns into um, an actual act. Yeah, and, yeah. and kind of that goes back to, you know, the, the, the families with their children kind of learning to have that open dialogue and, and, and talk about, you know, changes, talk about, you know, do you have a friend that engages in this type of behavior and really kind of helping them feel more comfortable in opening up with how their uh, how their children or, or loved one is is, is coping. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I still get um, kids who come in and say, oh, my parents say I'm just doing it for attention. Mm-hmm. And that's a, uh, a cue to me that we need some education and we need to kind of all get on the, on the same page, like Dr. Polk said, with communication and understanding that, I mean, maybe it's a cry for help, but it's also maladaptive coping. And it's unfortunately, like we talked about earlier, effective coping. So the conversation needs to shift away from attention and toward healing and and coping. Yeah. And so, you know, we've talked earlier in the month about uh, cultural diversities as it relates to to, uh, mental health, right? And so those are going to be some of the challenges that our kids are facing when trying to get, you know, treatment or their parents don't believe in treatment. Can you guys talk a little bit about those struggles that you guys uh, might see for the, the kids that want the help? Yeah, it's tough. Um, I think that sometimes parents think um, the kids don't need help, but after going through our services, you know, their eyes open a little bit more. And I do a lot of work with families in, in trying to bring attention to the stigma and try and move through it, you know, acknowledge that there's a stigma there and move through it. Um, obviously, race and ethnicity are quite to, tied to socioeconomic class. And um, I think a lot of the barriers that we see is really about um, income and and financial status, unfortunately. Um, That's just where we're at right now as a society. That also plays a huge factor in access to healthcare, just being able to afford it and transportation to get there, right? Absolutely. And then, you know, one last thing, you know, the pandemic has put a big, you know, 
strain on the lives of kids, right? Especially those that have to attend virtual schooling, can't see their friends, can't, you know, do much um, activities. And so have you guys seen like a rise in this last year as it relates to self-harm? Yeah, absolutely. With the, with the pandemic, we are, you know, without kids having that normal socialization and being able to navigate life and be able to learn how to interact and cope appropriately and kind of being isolated related to the pandemic, it really kind of uh, hinders their ability to be able to kind of have that brain development to be able to kind of um, mature in a way that that's healthy. And so we're definitely seeing a, a, an increased uh, number uh, within our acute and other settings that we're, we're seeing a lot more of the self-abusive behaviors because of how, how the kiddos are, are, are coping with the, the current situation. Yeah, well, we're really trying to get ahead of it, you know, trying to educate, like I said, educate people on different uh, preventative measures and different, um, you know, negative coping skills and then flip that into, you know, teaching those positive, those positive coping skills. And so listeners, uh, gladiators, if, you know, you're needing to um, reach out for help for your uh, children or even yourself, right? Because um, some adults, they they still um, have those maladaptive coping skills. Um, Please reach out and uh, we can put you in contact with San Antonio Behavioral if you're local to the um, JBSA area. Um, And if not, we can go ahead and definitely um, get you some um, treatment options in your um, local area. So I want to thank you uh, guys for joining in today. I really appreciate you. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting us uh, uh, be a part of this. Yeah, absolutely. And so to my gladiators, if you or someone you know are contemplating suicide, contact the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's 800-273-8255. 8255. And thank you guys again for joining in uh, with us today. Um, Gladiators out.